Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Loving and merciful God, we ask that you would come quiet our hearts from life's distractions. Settle here with us, and in your mercy, have patience with us as we labor to enter into your presence. Lord, you are the giver of life. Forgive us when we lapse into believing that we are our own creators. For it is you who holds all things together. We confess the busyness of our schedules, not only that only leave the crumbs, Lord, for you. Lord, even in this very moment, assist us in making space for you and help us to find our truest selves in you. We also confess our critical, critiquing attitudes that lead us away from contentment and love. In your mercy, replace our harsh judgments with generosity and goodwill. We confess that we are tired and often settle for an unsatisfying relationship with you because anything else often feels too hard. We confess the fear that we secretly carry that impedes our ability to really connect with you and others. In your grace, give us the courage to face and dismantle our fears. Lord, though each of us has our own story and experience, we come as one body, connected by the work of your Spirit. As such, help us to listen deeply, love each other well, and encourage each other in the hope of Christ. Lord, we lift up those in our body who are suffering from chronic pain and back problems, including Mark Pate and Byron Perryman. We pray for Bill Lee, who was hospitalized for issues related to leukemia, and we ask that you will grant him patience as he waits for the next medical step. We pray, too, for Trevetta Johnson as she cares for her aging father who lives in Texas. Lord, we also ask that you would continue to restore Lawrence Tulloch as he recovers from pneumonia. You know each, of, each need in this body, and in your mercy, we ask that you will meet each of us where we are and transform us by your love. And for Doug, as, as he brings the message, Lord, we ask that you will lead him by your spirit. Father, we pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The scripture reading tonight is from Colossians chapter 1. Verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, I don't know if I have ever heard a collective groan before when a sermon series was announced. So we'll, we'll uh, try to dig ourselves out of that hole. Um, in 1944, a soldier named Roger was stationed in the South Pacific, and he mailed in his ballot for the 1944 presidential election. Today, Roger is 96, and he will be voting in his 19th presidential election. And in an interviewer, he said he felt that this was both the most important election he'd ever faced and the most volatile. And I don't know if it feels that way to you. I haven't been around that long. I've lived through 14 elections. Uh, There just seems to be something different about where we are now. Uh, as a country, it just seems, it seems like something shifted. Uh, in, a, in a recent lecture, a Harvard historian, Jill Lepore, went back and looked at 100 years of debates. And it's actually a fascinating lecture. I'm sure you can find it online. And she has clips from debates going all the way back before FDR. And uh, while it's true that there was no political golden age, <laughs> When you compare the way that we talk to each other publicly in 1940 versus the way we do it now, it's very shocking. It's almost unbelievable. Um, Why does this election seem to have so much power of it? It it seems to be creating a lot of anxiety and fear uh, across the nation, among the people of God. I've struggled with it. Um, One of the reasons I'm doing this is I just kept thinking about it. and I've probably read too much history, and I keep hearing things and seeing things and then thinking, oh my gosh, I, that happened here and that happened here and if that could happen, that could go here. And uh, So I'm struggling with this too. The stakes are very high, obviously. Uh, Justice Scalia died. His seat remains open on the Supreme Court. Justice Breyer is 78. Justice Kennedy is 80. Justice Ginsburg is 83. So the next president could conceivably appoint four justices and shape the court for a generation. We're at war with an enemy we can't understand and can't really see. Turmoil around the world has caused millions of immigrants to seek refuge in other countries. The other countries have mixed feelings about hosting them. We can see beheadings live on our cell phone, and the list goes on. So we're anxious, and out of the anxiety comes anger. And if my Twitter feed is any indication, uh, the country appears to be turning against each other in violent ways. And this includes within the church. We seem to be getting swept up in the violent storm that is trying to overtake our country. C.S. Lewis wrote a brilliant book about spiritual warfare uh, called The Screwtape Letters. And uh, Uncle Screwtape is a tempter teaching a junior demon how to deceive Christians and lead them away from pure devotion to Christ. And in one letter, Uncle Screwtape writes, My dear Wormwood... Be sure that the patient remains fixated on politics. (laughs) Arguments, political gossip, and obsessing on the faults of people they've never met serves as an excellent distraction from advancing in personal virtue, character, and the things the patient can control. Make sure to keep the patient in a constant state of angst, frustration, and disdain for the rest of the human race in order to avoid any kind of charity of inner peace from developing. Ensure that the patient believes that the problem is out there and in the broken system rather than recognizing that the problem is in himself. Keep up the good work, Uncle Screwtape. (laughs) So 
Wormwood seems to be uh, busy this, this year. He's uh, doing a good job distracting us. And I've had so many conversations with, with both within and out of the church with, with folks saying, I don't know what to do as a Christian. How am I supposed to engage this process? How am I supposed to live in this crazy time? And so uh, I, I was preparing to preach from 1 Kings 8 on uh, Tuesday morning and got about three hours into it and, and thought, no, this is one of those times where we need to step back. And as a congregation, we need to try to address uh, what the Bible might say about how we can engage in politics. And I know, of course, that we all have our political views. We have deeply held opinions about issues and candidates. And I'm not going to talk about any of that. I'm asking that we go up uh, about 30,000 feet. And, I, and I'm asking to just kind of leave all the other stuff at the door and look at some universal biblical principles that might guide us in a, in a time like this. And over the course of the next three weeks, I'd like to talk about three words that we need to constantly keep in mind as we engage in politics. The first word is Jesus. In the fall of 1976, my friend Doug Martin invited me to Fifth Quarter at uh, the house of the Widows family. Fifth Quarter was a meeting uh, after the Worthington High School football game. I went for two reasons. I was sensing, I was a freshman in high school. I had begun to sense a spiritual longing in my heart. I had begun to feel guilty and separated from my maker. I uh, did not know what to do about it. Uh, The more powerful reason, however, was that I'd heard that cute girls were there, um, which has led many a man to the cross. And uh, so I went. And the, the evening was, uh, was a wonderful youth group, as you might imagine, in the 1976 with marshmallow games and all that kind of stuff. And at the end, Mr. Widows said, would anyone like to become a follower of Jesus Christ? And I'd been in church all my life. I don't know why. I'd never heard about that. And he said, Jesus Christ is God's son. He came to the earth to live a perfect life, to show us how to live, to die on the cross for our sins, to rise again on the third day, that he lives now to be our Lord, our leader, to come into our life and make us the kind of people he wants us to be, to bring us into a family so that we're never alone again. Would you like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And that night, I was 14 years old, I said, yes. And I became a Christian. I didn't become a Democratic Christian. I didn't become a Republican Christian. I didn't become uh, a pro-this or an anti-this Christian or whatever you want to say. I just became a Christian. I became a follower of Christ. And when we do that, we are doing what all disciples have done. And if we could go to that first uh, verse in the Gospel of Mark, passing along Side the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, who is this Jesus that we've decided to follow? Well, if you want an in-depth answer to that question, I encourage you to come on Monday night. Mark Pate's going to be teaching a wonderful Bible study in the chapel at 6 o'clock on the Gospel of John. 
And uh, you can just spend some wonderful hours there studying who Jesus is in the Gospel of John. Tonight, I just wanted to briefly mention three characteristics of Christ that we ought to keep in mind as we think about the political process. The first one is that Jesus is Lord. When Thomas discerns who Jesus is, he says, My Lord and my God. When Paul summarizes the church for the Romans, summarizes the gospel for the Romans, he says, If you confess with mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So when we say that Jesus is Lord, we say we believe that Jesus is Lord. That means both of our personal life, that he has authority over our personal life, but we're also saying that Jesus is Lord of history, that Jesus is sovereign over all of life. And the verse that we just read a few moments ago from Colossians 1, where it says that Jesus even now is, quote, reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross, What we're saying when we say Jesus is Lord is that that there is a power in life, a power in history that is greater than whoever sits in the Oval Office, greater than whoever sits in the Kremlin, greater than the electorate, greater than any political party, that there is a power above all of that that somehow is reconciling all things to himself even as we sit in the mess. That's what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. We're also saying that Jesus has defeated the powers. And Paul develops this in the book of Colossians as well. He says that when Jesus died, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The rulers and the authorities were spiritual powers that work through systems and structures of life. Systems and structures like the media, like the government, like education, like health care, like entertainment. Uh, the systems and structures that make life work. And uh, we've developed this before. Sometime we'll return to this again. But the idea is, is that when God created the world, he created systems and structures that were to serve people and help them flourish. But when the world fell into sin, demonic powers captivated those systems and structures and now used them to oppress and hinder human flourishing. And what this powerful verse says is that we are in a place in history when Jesus Christ, because of his death on the cross, in which he defeated Satan, we're in a place in history where the powers, the structures and the systems are being redeemed, being transformed, even though you can't fully see it all the time. And this will fully take place when Christ returns. So many would say, if you follow the media at all, that we are living in a time of almost an utter collapse in our, many of our systems. Uh, y- you might say that, the, watching some of the debates, that the political process has been uh, demon-possessed. You might say that, uh, that, that some of the things going on in the media and, and, in, uh, and, and with money uh, are demonic. And if that's all you knew, you could get pretty discouraged. But as Christians, we are saying, yes, it does seem that way, but we believe that there is a bigger story that Jesus Christ has defeated the powers and is in the process of redeeming the broken systems of the world to promote human flourishing. Third thing we're saying when we say we believe in Jesus is that 
we believe he's our good shepherd. So he doesn't just save us and leave us to figure out life on our own. He makes us part of a family, and he likes to call that family uh, like being in his flock. He says, I'm the good shepherd in John 10. I know my own, and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I'll give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So when we become a follower of Christ, we become a part of a new family with a new father who pledges to protect us and guide us and keep us safe and lead us on the path to his will. So, this all sounds fairly obvious if you're familiar at all with the gospel. But let's begin here. The first thing we need to keep in mind when we're thinking about engaging the political process is that we are people who trust in Jesus Christ. We are people who put our hope in Jesus Christ. And I know that sounds obvious, but sometimes during election years when everybody's talking about the evangelical Christian voting block or this voting block or the Catholic voting block or the progressive voting block, a lot of times we get confused and somehow we think that faith is not just trusting in Jesus. Faith is trusting in Jesus plus all this other political baggage. And, and I, I think one of the reasons so many people have rejected Christianity in any organized way is not because they've really looked at Jesus and rejected him. I think they've looked at what we've done with Jesus and all the junk we've accumulated with it, and they've just said, I, I don't want it. So let's go all the way back to first principles. And remember that a Christian is someone who's chosen to follow Christ. If you want to live faithfully as a Christian in this climate, you have to put your trust in Jesus Christ. And so I want to stop right now and offer a prayer. And uh, if this is a decision you haven't made, I want to give you a chance to make it because we can't go any farther if we hadn't taken this first step. So bow with me, please. You may pray this after me as I did with Mr. Widow's living room in the fall of 1976. Jesus, I don't know everything about you. I don't understand everything in the Bible. But I believe that you are God, that you are Lord, that you are my commander-in-chief, You're my president. You died on the cross for my sins so that I could be forgiven of every sin I've ever committed. You rose again on the third day. You poured out your Holy Spirit so that I can have a relationship with you. You made me a part of the family of God. I receive all this is true by faith. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill me now, that you would come into my life, and that you would help me be the person you made me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when the biblical writers talk about how a person has a relationship with Jesus, they usually use a Greek word, pastuo, and that word is either translated the same word, it's translated either believe, trust, or have faith. And actually, faith in the Greek is a verb. So Christians are people who have faith in Jesus, who put our trust or hope in Jesus. 
Now, here's where it gets a little tricky, and we need to move a little bit beyond cliches. What exactly are we hoping that Jesus will do? When I say that the first thing you need to keep in mind if you're going to endure this political season and engage it effectively is that Jesus is our hope, we need to move beyond a bumper sticker. What are you actually hoping that he will do? Well, the short answer is save us from our sins. Of course, we agree with that. But I think at a more profound level, what what I'm saying is when I say I trust in Jesus as my hope, my hope is in Jesus alone, what I mean is that my deepest needs as a human being, my most profound elemental needs, longings, and desires as a human being, my need to have a life that means something, my need to be loved, my need to have hope, that those deepest and most primal needs are met in Jesus Christ. That's what I'm saying when I'm saying that I hope in Jesus. Now, the Bible warns us, really all the way back to the first page of the Bible, that we are always turning away from Jesus as our hope to other gods. And the Bible calls that idolatry. And one of those false gods can be a powerful nation. The book of Isaiah talks about this quite a bit. In the year 735 B.C., King Ahaz stood on his balcony in Jerusalem and he watched the Assyrian army come in and prepare to destroy his city. And God sends the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz, and Isaiah described him like this. He said, His heart and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake against the wind. So the whole city's terrified, the whole nation's terrified, and King Ahaz says, you know, there's only one thing I can do. I I need to put my trust in Assyria. It's obvious. I need to make an alliance with Assyria. Isaiah pleads with him. This is all in Isaiah chapter 7. And and, and in beautiful words, he says, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but he says, "The, the king of Assyria is not the lord of history. There's a bigger lord. You can trust him. Please don't do this. King makes a treaty with Assyria anyway. Isaiah calls it a covenant with death, and it ends badly. Generation passes. Godly king Hezekiah makes another alliance with Egypt to save Israel. Isaiah says, please don't do this. Please don't trust in a nation to save you. Isaiah says in chapter 30, verse 15, in returning to God and in rest you'll be saved. In quietness and trust, that will be your strength. Hezekiah says that enough of that. I can't go there. Uh, and he makes an alliance with Egypt. And then Isaiah says, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who carry out a plan that is not from me, who turn an alliance that is not of my spirit, adding sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my counsel, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame. He says, this is not going to work. You trust in a nation to save you. It's not going to work. And of course it didn't. 
So here's the point. God's people get into trouble when they put their hope in a nation, even a great and powerful nation, to save them. Now, I'm going to say something now that I know all Christians don't agree with, and that's part of what we do in our church. Uh, I, I, I believe it's appropriate to love your country. And I understand there are certain schools of thought in the church that, that feel that, that it's not, but I'm speaking my own personal view here. Uh, I am increasingly aware of all the sins of my country, but I love my country. Uh, Sandy and I spent the summer of 1982 in the Soviet Union. It was difficult, it was frightening, at times it was even dangerous. And I'll never forget when our plane touched down in LaGuardia, the whole cabin burst into applause because we'd spent the summer under communism when we were home. And I was thankful that I lived in America. And a week ago, when I was in yoga class, and a guy next to me comes in at 6 in the morning, and he's got a shirt on that says, I fought in Baghdad. At the end of the class, I said, thank you for serving my country. And I, and I couldn't choke back the tears. I love my country. But there's a fine line between loving your country and making an idol out of your country. Do you see that? Do you see the difference? You can love your country. You can appreciate your country. You can be glad to be an American. You can understand the rights that we have here. Even as you understand the sins that we've committed, you can still love your country, but there is a point when you cross over and you make your country an idol. And I think this is one of the reasons why we have so much anxiety over this election. I think it works like this. At some primal level, it's not all up here, it's down here somewhere, I think, I need America to work to make my life work. America's got to work to make my life work. And if that candidate's elected, America's not going to work, and my life won't work. I'm doomed. I think that's where a lot of this fear and anxiety is coming from. We have put our hope in our country to protect us, and this election raises fears that our country might not be able to do that. I ran across a quote this week from a French theologian. Uh, the machine as thing is fine, but as soon as people put their faith in this machine, place all their hopes in this machine, are convinced that their spiritual life depends on this machine and that actually this machine will be the vicarious instrument which will allow them cheaply to exercise love of neighbor, then at that moment we are in full idolatry. And once a thing has been transformed into a divinity, we are ready to sacrifice persons to it. Friends, I think one of the reasons I've been anxious and maybe one of the reasons you've been anxious is because we've forgotten that Jesus is the Lord of history. And we've linked our ultimate well-being to what happens November 8th. Pastor Max Licato wrote his congregation some helpful words. He said, we are really ready for this presidential election to be over. We're ready for an end to this rancor and tackiness. 
Voters on both sides feel frustrated, even embarrassed by it all. There's a visceral fear and anger and angst about the result. What if so-and-so wins? When we wake up to November 9th, post-election, when the confetti is swept away and the election is finally over, what will we see? I have a prediction. I know exactly what November 9th will bring. Another day of God's perfect sovereignty. He will still be in charge. His throne will still be occupied. He will still manage the affairs of the world. Never before has his providence depended on a king, president, or ruler. And it won't on November 9th, 2016. Quote, the Lord can control a king's mind as he controls a river. He can direct it as he pleases. Proverbs 21, verse 1. Now, strange as it may seem, as ugly as this season has been, I I have this... uh, odd hopefulness that something good is actually happening in the church. I really do. And I wonder if God is using this period maybe to help us see our idolatry and repent of it. Maybe to to help us go back to a much more biblical model of the church this kind of Pilgrims and strangers, isn't that in their Bible somewhere? <laughs> Aliens, immigrants, <laughs> people that don't really belong here, that are kind of on the outside, that actually should expect to be persecuted because don't expect everybody else to get what you're trying to do with that Jesus thing. You know, some would say that the church got way off track in the 4th century when Constantine became a Christian and made Christianity the religion of the empire and started killing everybody that disagreed. It was great for the numbers. But some would say, that was a bad day. I'm beginning to think it was a bad day. Beginning to think it was a bad day. It could be really a good thing if we were like the early church. They were rocking until the 4th century. They really were. And I wonder if this horrible election season is part of God's plan to remind us that our ultimate hope is in Jesus and not in a political party. I mean, hopefully we can at least see it's just not as clean as that anymore. <laughs> it's just not, it's more complicated than that right now, right? Could Jesus actually be redeeming his church by reminding us to never put our hopes in a great nation or a great candidate or a great party? Could he be using this embarrassing debacle to remind us that after all, we are a pilgrim people, citizens of another kingdom, spiritual immigrants who don't really belong here? Now, when we say Jesus is our hope, I'm not saying it doesn't matter who wins, who cares. Mm, no. I'm going to talk about that next week. To say Jesus is our hope, we're not saying, ah, you don't need to vote or engage. No, we're not saying that at all. It does matter. What we are saying is that we fundamentally and ultimately trust in Jesus alone to give our lives meaning, to protect us, and to make us safe and secure. But we have to add one qualifier, and I call it the North Korean gulag rule of biblical interpretation. (laughs) You've heard of it, right? No, I just made it up. Um, 
but I really have thought a lot about this because if God's word is true, right, any promise to a middle-aged white man uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee would have to be equally valid to a tortured prisoner in a North Korean prison camp, right? I mean, doesn't that follow? So if I, if I preach you something that doesn't work in 90% of the world, you know, spoiler alert, <laughs> that's probably not true, right? I think the American church has bought into some bad theology that doesn't fly like in most of the rest of the world. Probably ought to throw it out. So, Mr. Prisoner in the North Korean gulag, Jesus is your hope. He'll keep you safe and happy. What does that mean? I think it means he's part of a bigger story that's actually worth giving up his life for. That he's part of an eternal, universal family of God. That no matter how hard they beat him, he's not alone. That's the hope. The hope is not a promise that America will flourish. I hope it does. I really do. Dan Holbrook sent me an article this week from about Cicero and how he saw the fall of the Roman Republic. Brothers and sisters, let's not put our hope in the American Republic. God did not promise that America will always flourish and win all our wars. He did promise he'd never leave you or forsake you. So, a few minutes, you're going to turn on your phone, you'll be flooded with something else a candidate has said about the other candidate or whatever. And when you do, remember one wonderful word, Jesus. Let's pray.